Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. So I'm waitressing, I'm doing this volunteer radio thing, and I'm, you know, just trying to grow and integrate as a person. So I'm going to yoga classes. And at one point I decided to do a series of rebirthing sessions. And I don't know if you know much about, this was something that was big in the eighties, but you do this deep breathing. And as part of this rebirthing process, these 10 sessions, you're given the opportunity to say what your prayer is for your life. And as a result of those rebirthing sessions, the prayer that came to me was God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. Because I knew it wasn't working at this Chinese restaurant and the volunteer radio thing, I didn't we didn't really have a sense of that being anything but a way to share music and get educated myself. So God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, and you are listening to At the End of the Tunnel, which is a podcast that features the backstories of luminaries and artists and people who are out there using their platform or their voice to make a positive difference in the world. So my intention is to interview people who seem to have found their calling in the world and to go deep into their backstory to see how it all happened. And what I find is that there's usually a moment where they hit upon some sort of conflict or internal crossroads where they could either go in the direction of fitting in or they can go in the direction of being more of themselves. And the people who find their calling are usually the ones who choose, sometimes against all odds, to be themselves and to do what's in their heart. And it's really that simple. And I think we need to hear more of these kinds of stories over and over and over to build up the courage and the confidence to do the same thing in our lives. So that's why I have this podcast and that's why I choose the guests that I choose, because we need to keep choosing to be ourselves, right? It's not just a one choice deal. To find our calling and to properly see it through, we need to make that choice a thousand times because the world is not set up for people to be themselves and to follow their heart. So it's scary, it's uncertain, you question yourself over and over, but eventually you become the model for what it looks like to follow your calling or your path And that's when everybody starts writing books about you and having you on their podcast and making films about you. What's interesting about my guest this week is that she is a person who has been responsible for putting out the work of so many luminaries and authors, including yours truly, through her publishing company, which is called Sounds True. You guys have heard me talk about my newest book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Well, Tammy Simon is my publisher. She is the publisher for Sounds True. She started that company back in the 1980s 
after getting a download that she was meant to help people while she was working in a greasy Chinese restaurant. She was a waitress. And that's why I say there are no throwaway moments. Soon after that, her father passed away. She got a modest inheritance, which she used to invest in some audio recording equipment. And she started recording spiritual speakers when they came to town to do lectures. Then later on, she partnered with someone who knew how to grow those kinds of businesses. And together, they created the publishing company Sounds True, which went on to publish books by Eckhart Tolle and Michael Beckwith and Wim Hof and Michael Singer, who wrote The Surrender Experiment. The name is also her mission statement, Sounds True. She wanted to amplify the work of people whose messages sounded and felt true on that spiritual level. Anyway, it was fascinating to hear the backstory because I've had so many wonderful experiences working with Sounds True over the last couple of years, and I found out about some things that I didn't know, which made a lot of sense why I was attracted to them. For instance, they've got a wonderful foundation that gifts books to prisons, and their office environment is also very progressive and inclusive of all points of view. And I think you're going to be inspired to hear how all of that came together and why Tammy Simon is so passionate about conscious capitalism and changing the landscape of the work environment. So without further ado, let us dive into my conversation with the incomparable Tammy Simon. Tammy, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. I'm honored for my listeners to hear your story because what they may not know is that you are the founder of the company that published my most recent book, Knowing Where to Look, which everyone is so proud of, not just me, but also the people who have gotten the book. I've gotten so much wonderful feedback. I didn't know a lot about Sounds True when we made the book deal. I mean, you guys definitely showed me that you were willing to invest in everything that I stand for, which is what an author obviously wants. But I got a chance to go back and uh, do a lot of research on the company and the meaning behind the name. And I'm so excited because when I was reading your story, it was kind of like you were like Forrest Gump, right? In the spiritual sense where, you know, in that movie, Forrest Gump, he was always like, he was around Nixon and Johnson. He was like around all these really amazing people. You were around a lot of amazing people in the spiritual community, people that we now look at and herald as icons of spirituality in our modern age, the Thich Nhat Hans, the Ram Dasses, the Sharon Salzbergs, Joseph Goldstein, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always interesting to connect the dots to see how all that came about. So thank you for coming on to the podcast, first of all. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. And I want to say, sounds true. And I personally I'm so pleased that we've published Knowing Where to Look. It's an honor to be your publisher, Light. Oh, thank you. So I want to kick off the conversation taking the listeners back to childhood. Where did you grow up again? I grew up in Coral Gables, Florida, which is right outside of Miami, South Florida. Okay. I lived down in Miami before, so I know Coral Gables well. So back in Coral Gables, little Tammy, you know, you're six, seven years old. Sure. Do you remember what your favorite toy or activity was as a child? Well, little Tammy is a tomboy for sure and (laughs) liked to play football with the kids in the neighborhood, even though my mom really wanted me to go to the dance class and 
finish my piano lessons. None of that for me. And the big thing for me was I wanted to be chosen early when you were picking who's going to be on your team. I wanted to be chosen early and I wanted to be a wide receiver. So it was that thing of like, so my favorite toy, it was a football. I wanted to jump in the air and catch the ball. What did that represent to you? Well, I think some of it is that, you know, the grace of that moment when you're jumping up in the air, you know, there's just something about that, you know, the leap, the full flight. I think also it was clear as a young kid, I was a really competitive person. I could turn anything into a competition, anything like who can run there fast, who can swim there the fastest, who can climb the highest, who can, you know, whatever, tap their head as many times as possible. Didn't matter what it was. So I think there was just something in my spirit that wanted to excel and win. And it was really deep in me, even as a little kid. Who were these boys or girls who embraced you or maybe didn't embrace you on the football field or in the neighborhood sure, you know, when you were playing? Just the kids that lived around our neighborhood and stuff. You know, quite honestly, I can't even really remember all of the actual faces. <laughs> I don't see it. But I do remember myself like wanting to get chosen early in uh-huh. the picking line. Yeah. And what was your household like? Were your parents together? Do you have siblings? I grew up in a liberal Jewish family. I was the youngest of five kids. There were three older kids and then a 12-year gap, and then my brother and I. My brother wasn't a planned birth, but he came, and then my parents thought, well, we don't want to have just one child. We'll have Tammy to accompany him. And there was a real emphasis on education, Mm-hmm. That education was your the number one most important thing that would give you opportunities in the world and a really big emphasis on ethics and action. It's what you do that matters. You can talk a big game, whatever, but are you an ethical person based on your actions? So in a nutshell, I would say I was raised to be, this is a Yiddish word, a mensch. A mensch is the do-gooder. A mensch is the person who takes the trash out when you go over to someone else's house after dinner say, oh, let me help. Let me do the dishes. Let me take the trash out. Like mm. that's, I was raised with that mindset very heavily. And quite honestly, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for it because it created such a strong sense of conscience inside of me that has mm. been a part of my guiding light as a person. Was it articulated by one of your parents as a sort of mantra? Did they have a saying in your house that they would echo all the time? It was just, you're judged by your actions and you're judged by your good name. And this was the idea that, you know, if if, as it wasn't so much a mantra, but if you went to a funeral of someone, listen to the sound of their name Mm. being said out loud at the funeral and what reverberates from it. And can you feel the goodness of all of Mm. the actions they've done, all the people they've touched, kind of the wake of their life. So that idealism was put in me that at the time of your death, when your name is said out loud, what will it sound like in the room? What will reverberate from it? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means 
you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. That's interesting because you actually took it a step further at the dinner table. You would say, what happens after you die? <laughs> what, yeah. was your, what was the well, reaction yeah. for those so, kinds of questions? So I, as I said, I really appreciated the grounding in my family. The part that I didn't appreciate as much is that I, as a child, was extremely inquisitive and you could say philosophical, reflective. You might even say existentially tormented if you wanted to take it to an extreme. And, you know, I was sitting there like, am I part of a dream of a dreamer? Who is the dreamer? And then who's dreaming the dreamer? And so these were the kinds of things that were kind of coming up in my mind. And I wanted to talk about them. I also wanted to talk about, is it really possible that there could be a nuclear war? What would happen? And why is there so much police brutality in Miami. Help me understand that. Who are the policemen? There were so many questions that I had as a kid, including what happens after we die and what do we know about it? And my parents would always say, let's not talk about that at the dinner table, Mm. Tammy. And I'd be like, well, when are we going to talk about it? When are we going to talk about it? And it became clear to me that I wasn't talking to the right people, (laughs) actually, (laughs) uh, about what was happening inside of me that I wanted to have I didn't want it just to be witnessed. I really wanted a conversation. I really wanted an interesting conversation. And, you know, in some ways you could say sounds true, you know, which I started when I was 21, 22 years old. The idea came to me when I was 21, started the company a little bit later, that it was an outgrowth of this loneliness that I had to have a real meeting and real conversations about ideas that matter. Because it was just, I felt so isolated in my inner spin. And I found Mm -hmm. talking to people so healing, useful, instructive, made me feel like I connected and belonged here on the earth. What was your relationship like with books when you were younger, when you were a teenager? Books saved my life, to be honest with you. They saved my life. I remember reading Herman Hesse for the first time, and it started with Siddhartha, and then I read Demian and Narcissus and Goldsmith, and I took these books, and I slept with them. Mm. Like, I literally, I put the book under my pillow at night. How old were you? This This is when I was a teenager, like, you know, 15, 16. And the reason I say they saved my life was that I had this feeling that the writers, Herman Hesse, and then also books by Alan Watts and 
books by Rainer Maria Rilke, I had the feeling that these writers went through the same kind of existential inner wrestling that I was going through. And they came through those experiences of wrestling and they came through it in such a way that they were able to deliver books that would live on beyond their lifetime and help other people. And I thought if they could do it, I'm going to make it too. I'm going to make it. I'm not going to just somehow, you know, combust here as a tortured teenager. There's a path for me. These other courageous souls found a way. They found their way. Were you the type that would read a Herman Hess book or a Rilke book, and then you would tell your siblings or your parents, you guys have got to read this book. This is amazing. Or would you kind of keep it to yourself as like your own little precious secret? I kept it to myself because I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't really know who to talk to. People didn't seem that receptive. I think I didn't want to keep it to myself, but I didn't know who to talk to. You mentioned that your self-described outsider. How did you know that? Was there an incident that happened where you're like, okay, I can't talk to anybody about this kind of stuff? Well, there's a couple things. I think first, let's go ahead and start with the fact that from a young age, I was slightly more attracted to girls than I was boys. Mm -hmm. I was also attracted to boys, but a little bit more so to girls. And I knew that this was not okay. So we're back now in the 1970s and, you know, I had to keep this quiet. I couldn't even tell my girlfriends. You know, and then I had to find the right time. Girlfriends meeting like my little young friends. Like, could I say, I want to kiss you? How would that go over with my little young friend? You know, how did you Uh, know it wasn't okay, though? Did you hear somebody in synagogue or? I didn't see any lesbians around me. It wasn't modeled (laughs) for me. And I did have experiences from a young age where I made approaches to other little girls where I wasn't well received. So I had experiences that this is unusual, Tammy, Mm -hmm. and keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. And it wasn't, you know, at a time, I mean, now you hear the kids, you know, it's a whole different sort of situation, but it wasn't like that for me when I was in junior high and high school. And since I was also attracted to little boys, I was just like, I don't really know what to do with this. Make out with the boy. That's going to be okay. So I knew in that sense already that there was something different about me. You used the word outsider. I could tell, you know, you're an outsider, Tammy, you're different. So that was a pretty big difference that I had to work with. I mentioned to you, I was a tomboy and I went to a regular school, but then there was this special acceleration program, gifted child program thing that I went to, where we went to a large public high school. And I remember walking down the halls and people would come up to me and they would say, are you a boy or a girl? Are you a boy or a girl? So there was also a question just Mm. because I I liked to wear kind of, you know, whatever ripped jeans and big shirts that people didn't know my gender identity. So that made me feel a little odd as well. And then there were a couple other things, you know, my parents very much wanted me to be a good Jew. And at age 13, I was bat mitzvah, but then at age 16, you're supposed to be confirmed. And when you're confirmed, you declare that you're going to be an adult Jew in the community. And I remember having conversations with the rabbi saying, I'm a global citizen. And this whole thing about Jewish people are the chosen people. Chosen for what? I don't believe that. I don't like that. This is Hmm. tribalism. I don't want to be part of a small tribe. I'm a universal citizen. 
And, you know, the rabbi said, well, maybe you shouldn't get confirmed. And I'm like, correct. I don't want to be confirmed. And of course, my mother was so disappointed in the rabbi. And so this was also a big debate, not only that I was a universal citizen, but I remember my parents, they would say, look, we're cultural Jews. You don't have to believe that, you know, there's some kind of mysterious God or something like that. It's just being part of the culture. And I was like, but what if there is some mysterious awesome force that's actually the source of everything. What if that, what if there's something like, you know, so that I also didn't feel like I could connect there. I didn't want a cultural form. I wanted a direct connection to something like source that I could feel was real inside me. All those and things made me feel like an outsider. And there's more right. if you want me to keep going, right? You know? <laughs> no, I actually, I know the feeling very well. <laughs> I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. You can imagine there wasn't a lot of esoteric or occult circles or metaphysical discussions happening down there either. So question, you've been reading these books and you're a minch in your community. How did you see success as a teenager? Like when you projected ahead, maybe 10 or 20 years, like, and you're, you said you're competitive and all that. What did you see yourself becoming or doing in life as a teenager? I thought I would be like a philosophy professor or something Mm -hmm. like that. I didn't know what it meant to be a philosophy professor, but I thought I would probably take some kind of academic path because I loved learning and that it would have something to do with the deepest questions of meaning. So I think that, you know, author, philosopher, teacher, something like that, I think was what I thought might be possible for me. So does Swarthmore have an amazing philosophy department? Is that why you chose to become a philosophy major there? So I thought I was going to be a philosophy major, but that didn't last. I got kicked over into the religious studies world. But I went to Swarthmore. I went on a college tour. And, you know, first of all, I just want to say, you know, how lucky I was that my parents wanted to support me to go to a really good college and had saved up their money to help me do that. And, you know, I think uh, as a kid, I, I didn't necessarily recognize it's now as an older person looking back, I can see, you know, how much support. I was given Mm. as a person. Mm. And I was given a lot. I was given everything, really. And I have tremendous gratitude for that. And quite honestly, a tremendous sense of debt, debt just to the world, to take everything that I was given as a person and Mm -hmm. do some good stuff with it for other people. But as that young person, you know, I got into all kinds of fancy colleges and I got into all fancy colleges because I went to a college preparatory school down in Miami called Ransom Everglades. Maybe you've heard of it. It's located in Coconut Grove, Florida. And, yeah, you know, a friend you, who used to teach there. Yeah, you put your name, Ransom Everglades graduate, on your college application. That really helps. Quite honestly, I also had, and I'm not trying to say this in a braggartly way, but I had high SAT scores, which was cool mm-hmm. and wonderful. So I got into Harvard and Yale and fancy schools, including Swarthmore. There was something about Swarthmore that I liked because I could feel its innovation. I could feel that it was trying to do something different. It was trying to bring forward a different kind of thinker or scholar. So I liked that. I liked the campus. And also when I originally went there to interview, I was being interviewed 
for a social change, a Lang scholarship for social change. And I ended up not getting the scholarship, but in the process, I met a lot of people. And my best friend at the time was going to Harvard, and I felt there was something important about she and I doing something different. Like I didn't want to, she and I had done so much. It's weird. You know, some people would be like, go where your best friend's going so you can be friends. But I was like, no, don't go where your best friend is going. I don't really know why I thought that way, but I did. So you can differentiate and find your own way. So all of that led me to Swarthmore. And the interesting thing is that in my sophomore year, I had a meeting at Swarthmore, which was hugely life-changing with a professor that was there for just one year from Sri Lanka on a Fulbright scholarship, teaching in the religious studies department, and he was teaching Buddhist ethics and Buddhism and existentialism. So it's just so interesting, because, you know, it's also, it's just interesting, like, you know, here I am, I'm almost 60 now. So in a certain way, I'm starting to look back at my life and have certain insights and understandings that I maybe didn't have when I was just busy living it forward. And in looking back, you know, one of the real big pieces of meaning was that I met Professor Gunapala Dharmasiri, who had been a monk for the first 16 years of his life from Sri Lanka there in my sophomore year. And it was hugely life-changing. I think that's a big part of, if you were to ascribe meaning to the choice looking backwards that I made the decision to go to Swarthmore. Do you recognize something in his presence or energy that just stood out to you? And if so, what was that? Well, I'm going to give you the honest answer. It wasn't so much that. I mean, I was really interested in what he was teaching. Mm -hmm. I remember in the very first class, there was a chalkboard, believe it or not, hard to imagine in today's world, but there was a chalkboard. And on the chalkboard, he wrote the three marks of existence in Buddhism. And that the first mark was impermanence. Everything's impermanent. And I was like, That's true. That makes a whole lot of sense. Sure. Great. The second thing is that if everything's impermanent, you are too. There's no solid sense of self. This person you think you are, you're always changing. There's nothing solid. And I was like, oh my God, someone finally named the thing that I've been feeling, that there's nothing solid here. Like I felt that I'm falling in some weird abyss and there's nothing solid. Someone's saying you're impermanent just like everything else. So you feel that way. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. And then the last thing, the third mark is suffering and that we suffer because we hold on to solidity and we want things to be solid. We don't want things to be changing and we want things to be there. So when he put those three marks of existence on the board, that was like a homecoming for me. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Someone finally said something real. Someone said something real at school. And uh, so it was more that. It wasn't so much him really as a person. It was what he was teaching that just struck me as so important and resonant and uh, relieving that I wasn't just alone having these discussions inside myself, but that now it was out on the blackboard. And then he and I became friends. We became really good friends. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily because he was the most present human. I mean, he was a chain smoker. He was a deep thinker. His wife cooked fabulous curry dinners. So I would go over to his house where he had these three little beautiful Sri Lankan kids running around. And I would help his wife, Kusum, do the dishes afterwards in the kitchen. She'd be like, no, no, no. She barely spoke English. I was like, yes, yes, yes. And then he and I would spend hours talking into the evening. 
And, you know, we were talking about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. We were, he had a lot of questions. He taught in the religious studies department. And we became real friends. So that, that's really what it was. And you also, I'm assuming, had a chance to enjoy your outsider status in college and all the things that came with that. Kind of, but, you know, quite honestly, I coined this phrase inside that I was the fringe of the fringe. And at a certain point when you're <laughs> the fringe of the fringe, you might fall off the fringe. And I yeah. kind of did fall off the fringe. And, you know, some of it, quite honestly, was I started experimenting with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do a lot. And thank goodness I didn't because I don't really have the makeup for that. It was the, the experiences I had were so powerful that I didn't need a lot of them. But those experiences also increased the kind of cosmic and slightly separate world I was living in and mm -hmm. increased also this feeling that I couldn't follow the conventional path. And I think part of it at the time was that I really wasn't that interested in studying other people's ideas and writing about them and analyzing them and critiquing them. I really wanted to understand what was going on inside of me. And mm -hmm. at the time, especially in academia, that was like, well, that's not what we do here. You know, you write a paper on someone else's published paper. And I was like, but this is religious studies. This is supposed to be about something about the inner journey. But that really wasn't welcome. So I became the fringe of the fringe. And at the end of my sophomore year, I left and I decided to follow Gunapala Dharmasiri and his family to Sri Lanka, where I stayed for six months. And then I traveled in India and then in Nepal and really went on a, a pilgrimage, a personal pilgrimage. What preceded that decision to leave? Did you have a, a specific conversation with him? Did he invite you to come and follow him over there with his family? Here's the scene that I remember. I was in the mail room where you get your mail at Swarthmore College. Not that big a room, so you'd bump into other students and stuff, and everybody had their little mailbox. And I got in, opened my little mailbox, and it had paperwork where you had to declare your major. So here I am. I'm a sophomore. I have to declare my major. And I looked at it all, and I thought, why would I major in religious studies? And I had been studying writings and teachings of the mystics. And I thought any really solid mystic worth their salt would not major in mysticism. I'm out of here. So it was that moment of looking at the form. And I remember taking the form and putting it in the trash when I walked out of the mailroom. I just put it right in the trash. And then I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, you know, then I had a conversation with Darme, which was his nickname, Gunapala Dharmasiri. So I had a conversation with Darme, and he was like, why don't you come over to Sri Lanka? You can stay with us. You can go to Paradinia University, which was the university there, which I didn't end up doing and didn't want to do. But then he extended the invitation, and I started cooking up a plan for something or other. Did your mom think you like had an affair with this guy or some weird thing was happening? Like, how did you even afford to go sure. to Sri Lanka? Sure. Well, she didn't think I had an affair with him, partially because I'd already come out as a lesbian. And also, he, <laughs> and also he and his wife and their three kids, ready for this, we all drove down to Miami in a wagon that we had rented a car. We all went down to Miami together. And he and his wife and three kids stayed at my mom and dad's house and met them. And, you know, okay. 
he, you know, my mom liked him. And so they, you know, it was all very kind of in the family. So she wasn't suspicious about that. She did think that I was losing my mind and losing my way. And she was pretty worried about it. And, you know, I mentioned how lucky I was that I had the support of my family. And my mother wanted nothing more in her own life than to have someone pay for her to go to college. And there wasn't enough money in her family for that. Mm. So she was one of four kids. And one of her brothers got to go to an academic institution. And she didn't. She wanted to go study. So she was like, you're throwing all of this away. Everything we worked for, everything, whatever. Wow. You spoiled, terrible kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. And I was like, that's your thing. That's not my thing. But it was devastating to her. She could not understand it. You know, but at the time I was like, let me just go away for a year. Like, I'm not making any big decisions. Like, I tried to, you know, I'm just going away for a year. This is a journey inward. Give me the space to do this. And my father was like, well, we're not going to pay for it to answer your Mm. question, right? But I'll match you. If you earn half the money, I'll give you the other half of the money, which I thought was pretty, pretty right on. I thought that was like, good on you, dad. That's, you know, it's reasonable. I'll earn half the money. And so I spent the summer living at their house. They were someplace else during the summer. They had built a a second home uh, in the Berkshires. So I was in their house in Miami and I spent that summer waitressing, got on my bike, rode to the restaurant, waitressed, waitressed, waitressed. It's a little French cafe, kept every dollar I made and earned a couple thousand bucks, enough money. My father matched it. And I went on this journey. Did you have a aunt or a grandparent or somebody who was in your corner who was saying, you know, you should just do it. You have to live your life and that kind of conversation. Cause I can imagine it your mom lays it on that thick, it can be pretty, I mean, even for the strongest young person, you still may buckle under that pressure unless you have some sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi figure in your ear telling you what you can do. I didn't really have anybody like that. No, no. No. Older siblings. No no one said. No. I mean, it makes me a little sad (laughs) that I didn't, that I didn't have anybody like that. That just shows how strong you were as a a young person. But you know, it was also, it was like, how can I put it? The door had closed, like the academic door had closed. It was meaningless to me. It was like ash in my mouth or whatever you want to say. There was nothing there. In a way, it was a little bit choiceless, to be honest with you. You had your books too. You had Rilke in your consciousness. You had Herman Hess in your consciousness. So you had those mentors. Yeah, which I tell people, you know, if you don't, yeah, exactly. If you don't have a physical person in your life, then you can find that in books as well. For sure. You know, I, I mean, I had written papers, you know, I was like, can I take Rajneesh's books and write uh-huh. a paper on what it means that we have a sky-like mind, you know, in my religious studies department and things like that. And I'd read Meister Eckhart and Teresa of Avila. So, you know, I had the mystics and they were with me. You said you discovered meditation when you were in India and Nepal and Sri Lanka and felt like a homecoming. Can you articulate what that actually feels like? Sure. Well, so when I was in Sri Lanka, there was a opportunity to attend a 10-day kind of boot camp meditation experience with someone named Goinka, who teaches Vipassana meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting kind of meditation. It's very body-based. So you focus on tracking your sensations literally from the tip of your toe up to the top of your head. And for six days of the 10 days, you just, 
you start tracking every little pinprick of sensation on your body. And you start at five in the morning and you go till 10 at night and you're in noble silence the whole time. So you're not supposed to say a word, not one word. You're not even supposed to start talking to yourself in the bathroom or anything. It's just noble silence the whole time. So that's the first six days. And then the last four days, you do this sweeping technique. So once all the sensations in your body have been contacted, then you sweep up and down, up and down your body. And so after I did this first 10-day retreat in Sri Lanka, I remember coming out of the retreat and I remember Dharma looking at me and he's like, your eyes look different. And I'm like, oh, what's different? And he's like, it's like the lights went on inside. And I thought it's true. The lights did go on inside. And I felt so, you use the word home and homecoming. It's a beautiful word. And sitting on the cushion, doing that practice and being silent. Honestly, I'd never been that happy, content, rested, just there, just really there in my whole life. And, you know, all of the like, what about that? What about that? All the angst, all the struggle to figure stuff out and all that had, had, I dropped it all. And I discovered what it was like to rest in space, rest in eternity, rest in being. I loved it. Love, 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 love. You can say it as many times, underline it. Love the practice. So I decided to go to India to Goinka's center. And he has, it's a place called Igatpuri, where he teaches these 10-day retreats when he's not traveling them, traveling and offering them in other places. So I went to Igatpuri, and I did two of these 10-day retreats back-to-back. Quite honestly, wow. I did the first one. I was only going to do one, and then I was going to keep traveling. And I walked out of the center, and I walked out, and I walked like just like maybe a 1,000 yards away, and was, you know, and I walked right back in. <laughs> and I was like, I just want to go back in. And then I did one more of these 10-day retreats. I followed him. He was teaching up at, to Kathmandu. And on the one hand, this all sa- this sounds very romantic, very deeply revelatory and meaningful, which it was. And I didn't know how to integrate this experience into the rest of my life, demonstrated by the fact that I walked out and walked right back mm-hmm. in. I was like, I don't know how to do this and be part of the world. I don't, but I'm just going to go back and do this because I really like this. You also mentioned that you had lost a bunch of weight while you were over. Right. So, so here I am, I'm doing this meditation thing. And, you know, I mentioned to you that I experimented with psychedelics when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And then when I was traveling through Sri Lanka and India, you know, I smoked some hash with people and stuff like that. So, and what I'm saying is that my nervous system, I don't think was really grounded and able to take these deep experiences and become healthily embodied. It took me a long time to bring it all together into one integrated being. So at the time when I was doing this deep meditation, I didn't find that there was a whole lot of need to eat or talk. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. like two things I do a lot of in my normal life today, (laughs) a lot of talking, a lot of enjoying eating. But at the time I was just like, people talk to fill space. Why fill space? Just appreciate space. Eating, I'm not really hungry. Started losing weight, started losing weight. Okay, no big deal. But then I started noticing that there were some certain things with my health that didn't seem quite right. I'm not going to go into the details 
you know, I feared that something might be wrong. So I went to a clinic and it was my 21st birthday. And because I was in a clinic where I was sleeping overnight, I didn't call home on my 21st birthday. And this alarmed my parents to no end. Mm -hmm. You didn't call home on your 21st birthday. You must be dead. So I called a couple of days later. I told them I was in a clinic that I had hepatitis, and you know that I'd I'm sure gotten from eating street food or whatever the heck I was doing in India, which makes sense, you know. And then they were like, "Okay, game over, experiment over, journey inward, pilgrimage over. We have now wired money for an airplane ticket immediately back. You're getting on the next flight. It's done." And you went back. I went back. So I get off the airplane and I'm wearing this kind of like funny outfit, you know, and I only weigh 90 pounds and I'm wearing this like overalls kind of. And I get called to go when I get off the airplane to a special line. I don't know why I'm in a special line. And then they, they want to like pat me down and make sure I'm not carrying drugs because I look like a drug dealer. You know what I mean? I mean, I got frizzy hair out to here. I'm wearing these big overalls and I look spaced out as, as I'll get out. And so I come out the line and after being patted down, and of course I didn't have any drugs with me. And I'm like, where are my parents? I thought they were going to pick me up. Huh, they must be running a little late. Just a little bit of an odd thought because why my parents wouldn't be running late to pick me up at the airport, but I, you know, and you know, I had this motto: I th- I can think, I can wait, I can fast. You know, this is a, a from a Herman Hess book, so I was like, I can wait, I know how to wait, so I'm just going to sit here on this curb and wait for my parents to come. But meanwhile, they were in a different part of the airport waiting for me to come out of the line with everybody else, and their experience was that I didn't come off the airplane that I was supposed to be on. So I'm sitting there, I'm just patiently waiting on the curb. I probably waited about three hours. And suddenly I see my mom and dad looking like the saddest humans on planet Earth. Their faces, their mouths are down to the floor practically. They're so sad. I'm like, mom, dad, hi, I'm here. And they're like, oh my God, what are you doing sitting out here on the curb? We've been waiting in this other place. Anyway, and I explained to them that I came out through a different line and, you know, we had this reunion and everything. But yeah, that was the story of my homecoming. Did your mom tell you right away, oh my God, you've lost all this weight, got to make you eat? They took me immediately to Baskin Robbins and said, (laughs) please order, please order as much ice cream as, yeah, exactly. Please eat as much as you can eat. It's kind of sweet to think of it. You know, both my parents aren't aren't alive anymore, Light. So, mm -hmm. you know, having these memories with you, it's meaningful to me. I have have such gratitude to both of them. And, you know, thinking about their love of me and their care and their confusion at what I was up to and stuff. Did you mention to them the promise that you made to yourself when you were over there in Asia about doing anything that you could to bring the practices that you had experienced to as many people as possible? And for the universe really. to use you. Not really. I think I was more like they wanted me to eat. They wanted me to go have a doctor, like doctor appointment and doctor appointment. And then they wanted me to go finish college. And <laughs> so that's where they were coming from. It's like, okay, now you're going to go get your degree, right? Go back to Swarthmore, finish your degree. You had a year, you did this thing. Now it's time, get your degree. So it wasn't really time for them to, for me to share my, my. <laughs> your aspirations for spiritual. No. Enlightenment. No. No, that wasn't what was happening. You ended up going to this Chinese restaurant 
was that in Coral Gables or was that? No, no, no. So, okay. So just to set the stage. So my parents had a a summer home in the Berkshires. So they picked me up from an airport and we went to, to their summer home for a bit. And then they said, please get your degree. Just go talk to the head of the religion department, have a conversation. And gentleman named Don Swearer, and he knew Gunapala Dharmasiri. He knew me. He knew Dharmasiri and his whole family went down to Miami with me, with he, which he thought was crazy for a professor that he had invited to be traveling down with a student. To me, like he just thought the whole thing was crazy. And that, you know, we all went to Disney World together. He was just like on the way to Miami. He was just like, "This is crazy." Okay, so I went and talked to him, and I said, "My parents really want me to have this conversation with you. Is there any way I could, in a meaningful way, finish my degree in the religious studies department?" And he said, well, what are you interested in? And I was like, well, I'd like to go live with religious cults and write about my experience of living with different cults and tell you what I learned and experience. And he said, you don't belong at Swarthmore, Tammy. And <laughs> I said, I could have told you that. <laughs> You're right. I don't belong at Swarthmore. You're right. And that was that. That was the end of that conversation. So then it's kind of a long story, but my parents were so determined that I graduate from a college that I came out to Boulder, Colorado, where there's a university called Naropa University, which is the first Buddhist university. And I thought I can study the intersection between psychology and meditation, and maybe I can get some insight into what happened to me during this journey in Sri Lanka, India, Nepal, and the meditation experience. Maybe I can get some insight. So I signed up to go to Naropa, but when I went into Naropa, even this groovy university where people meditate, you know, as part of their coursework, I just realized I just didn't want to be in college. It's just something in me that wanted to be free. I just didn't want to do it. And so when I left Naropa, my parents said, we're not going to support you. We're not going to give you any more money. And I was like, you shouldn't give me any more money. Good for you. Stop supporting me. And that's when I started waitressing at the relatively greasy Chinese restaurant with the cook who used to smoke cigarettes over the walk while he was cooking. And whenever the ashes would fall in, he'd just kind of mix it in. And he thought it was like part of his special sauce. And then he'd have some beer, put a little beer in. And people were crazy about his sauces. And I thought, they don't know the real... So anyway, I started waitressing at Mr. Lee's Chinese restaurant And, you know, I told you I was a really competitive person because one of the things I realized, even then when I started waitressing, even after all that meditation, was the waitresses were like, let's all pool our tips. Uh And I was like, I'm not pooling my tips with you. (laughs) I'm like covering half the restaurant at twice the speed, twice the tips. People like, I I know how, I'm not, no, you guys are all like slow, slow boats. So I thought, huh, that's interesting about you, Tammy. I mean, I was reflective even at the time. That's just like interesting that, that that's your spirit. Is this around the time that you had developed this prayer that you started yeah. reciting? Yeah. So here I am. I'm, I'm working at the Chinese restaurant and another really big development had happened, which is I volunteered at the local community radio station, KGNU, Boulder County Community Radio. Uh, two reasons. When I was at Swarthmore, I had gotten involved with late night radio. They called it the graveyard shift. And the okay. graveyard shift was between midnight and 6 a.m. And the station manager at the college radio station said, here's a key, do whatever you want between midnight and 6 a.m. No one else wants to be up at that hour. So you remember, I'm having strange outlier patterns at college. And so the idea that I could go midnight, open up the radio station 
play whatever songs I wanted and talk to people and say, you know, I have a quiz. I want to find out how many people feel uncomfortable wearing shorts. Call me, let me know. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever I could think of. And so I knew, I discovered from that, that I loved radio. I just loved it. And, you know, I'd been involved with a high school newspaper. So I knew I liked journalism, but I liked audio journalism the most. I just Mm -hmm. loved it. So that was part of it. And then secondly, I thought, huh, if I go and I volunteer at the radio station, maybe I could have an interview show where I interview spiritual teachers. And if I'm interviewing spiritual teachers, then I can continue the education that I want and need, but I can't get in an academic setting. And so I had uh, two shows at the community radio station. One was called the After Hours Audio Amazon, in which I had my music show. And then I had an interview show called Live from Planet Earth, where I interviewed spiritual teachers. So I'm waitressing, I'm doing this volunteer radio thing, and I'm kind of grow and integrate as a person. So I'm going to yoga classes. And at one point I decided to do a series of rebirthing sessions. And I don't know if you know much about, this was something that was big in the eighties, but you do this deep breathing. And as part of this rebirthing process, these 10 sessions, you're given the opportunity to say what your prayer is for your life. And Mm -hmm. as a result of those rebirthing sessions, the prayer that came to me was, God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. Because I knew it wasn't working at this Chinese restaurant and the volunteer radio thing, I didn't we didn't really have a sense of that being anything but a way to share music and get educated myself. So God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. Was anybody listening to this radio show? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I don't know how many people were listening to the <laughs> audio Amazon because that was between midnight and 3 a.m. But, you know, here in Boulder County, late night radio has a small audience. And then the interview show was on Sundays in the morning at 11 a.m. And we had decent listenership. And I knew there was decent listenership because I would get calls after the show. And people would say, great, great conversation. Can I get a copy of that? And I was like, oh, interesting. So I, you know, I got a little dubbing deck, you know, one-to-one copy, press the button. And uh, I would make maybe three to five copies a week on a really good week, seven copies. I'd sell them for 10 bucks. And I would just respond to people who called me and say, can I get a copy of that? Can I get a copy of that? Interesting. Did you have to split the the proceeds with the radio station or? No, the radio station, radio station didn't care. I mean, it's a volunteer thing. They were like, good on you. So then you quit the waitressing job. So I quit the waitressing job because it just was meaningless at a certain point after doing it for about nine months. And I had accumulated a little bit of cash, not much. And I thought, I'm going to do this experiment. I'm going to say this prayer, God, I'm willing to do your work. I'm just going to say it again and again and again. And I'm going to see if meaningful work shows up for me. And then... I have an entry in my journal that says, I'm running out of money. Looks like my experiment has failed. And the next day I get a call that my father has died and he died of heart failure. And soon I learn that I'll be receiving a small inheritance. And my small inheritance is about 50 grand. 
And that was back in 1985. So that would be like $200,000 today. Mm -hmm. So to a 21-year-old person, didn't seem that small to me. It seemed like a lot Mm -hmm. of money, actually. And then a sequence of events unfolded. Do you want to know what that sequence was? I would love to know. I'm I'm, I'm hanging on every word over here. (laughs) Okay. So I get this small inheritance, and the question is, what am I going to do with it? And one of the people that I was interviewing for Live from Planet Earth was a local entrepreneur who was into crystals. So it was pretty weird when I would walk to the radio station from the house I lived in, I would walk by his street front window that had these large crystals. I'm talking like two, three feet tall, like major crystals here in Boulder, Colorado. And I was like, what's that guy doing with those crystals? Like, What's going on? And then he also had a sign in his window, which was a yin-yang sign with a dollar symbol through the center of it, and the words transformational economy. So I was also, what's the yin-yang sign and the dollar sign doing together? What's going on with this guy? So I'm talking to him, befriending him, trying to learn about crystals. I say to him, I want to do a radio show with you about crystals. And then I share, hey, you've got this transformational economy sign. I just inherited this money. I'm not sure what to do with the money. I don't really want to put it in the bank. I think the bank could invest in things that wouldn't necessarily reflect my values. So I'm not sure what to do with this money. What should I do with it? And he looks at me and he says, why don't you put the money into yourself? And I said, well, that's a really good idea, except I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Like my, me and myself, we're all confused. We don't know what to do. We're, we're walking the streets, looking in people's windows and stuff. I don't know what to do. He looked at me and he said, Tammy, you know what you want to do. You know. Come back in three days and we'll talk about it. And then I walked out of his office and something really odd happened. Something quite odd. The first odd thing that happened was I felt like I wasn't quite walking on the ground after I exited his office. As I was walking on the sidewalk, I felt like I was three feet above the actual pavement. So that was a weird feeling. I was like, I feel like I'm walking in the air. This is really freaking weird. This is a really weird feeling. And then the next thing that happened was that I heard some kind of voice. And I don't know what it was, internal voice, external voice. I have no idea. The words I heard were disseminate spiritual wisdom period. And my foot hit the ground and I started walking on the ground. So now I'm walking on the ground and I start thinking about it. Disseminate spiritual wisdom. How am I going to do that? How am I going to do it? Well, books are a great way. I love books, but you know, a lot of people publishing a lot of books. I don't know if that would be something I could just break into. And then I was like, well, there's video, but my parents watched a lot of television. So they were watching television instead of having the kind of conversations I wanted to have. I don't think I want to go into video and that's an expensive medium. And then it was like audio. Oh my, well, look, I love the radio. I love learning by listening. I already have like one of the smallest cottage businesses in the world with my little dubbing deck, making a couple cassette copies a week. I'll disseminate spiritual wisdom through audio. And that was really the beginning of Sounds True. Did you talk to anyone about that experience the night it happened or or in the days after it happened? You know, right away, I didn't talk to anybody. I came back and talked to this gentleman with the crystals. I came back and talked to him about it. 
and told mm-hmm. him what happened. And he said, you know, that building over there, I own it. And the upstairs isn't rented. You could have one of the rooms upstairs for just a couple hundred bucks a month. And I was like, good, we're going. So I talked to him and then I kept talking to him and he said, stop talking to me so much. I got to go back to work. I got a lot going on. And I was like, okay, he doesn't want to talk to me anymore. I got to find some other people to talk to. <laughs> so I mean, disseminate spiritual wisdom. When I started Sounds True and people said, what are you doing? Those were like my magic words because they were given to me. So that was my code word. It's like, uh, that's what we're doing. We're disseminating spiritual wisdom. I believe your first recording was Ramdas. Was that the yeah, first one? It wasn't one? exactly the first one, but you know, I at first it was just I bought a little TCD5M cassette recorder, you know, so uh-huh. I thought it was such a big purchase, you know, whatever, $500 for this. And I would go around and I would record anybody that I thought was giving a lecture or workshop in Boulder that had meaning and value. And I just came, I was like, hi, can I record you? Great. You know, people are like, what? So, and then that built up to having the opportunity to record some more celebrity level teachers, if you will, like Ram Dass and Stephen Levine and Marion Woodman and Clarissa Pinkola Estes and other great teachers in the late 1980s. What was the plan? I'm going to record them and then I'm going to pitch a deal with that teacher to no, sell well, so the recordings? The, so the plan was really simple. One of the things I'd seen, and I'd seen it at some, I don't know, like at an event that I'd gone to, was these high-speed cassette duplicating machines. Okay. So you could take a master, and then there was a unit that had three little open slots, and then another unit that had four open slots, and you could string them together. And depending on how many units you had, you could make 10, 13 copies of a cassette master in three minutes. So I would bring this high-speed duplicating equipment with me. The part that I feel the most proud of is that I carried these high-speed duplicating machines. They were heavy, but I was just like, pick them up, girl. You don't got anyone else who's going to pick them up. Just pick them up and bring them, you know? So I would take them with me and I would made an arrangement with the presenters where I'd say, hey, Light, you're giving a workshop. Here's the deal if you're interested in it. I'm going to give you a submaster of this recording. You're going to get your own set of master recordings. You can do whatever you want with them. I'm going to professionally record you and you can do whatever you want. What I want to do is make copies for people. And after I cover my costs of being here and my equipment costs, whatever, I'll give you a split of the revenue of what happens right here. And this will be a great service to the people who have come who want to leave. They're going to be able to walk out of the workshop on Sunday with copies of what just happened right here. So that was my original pitch to mm-hmm. the teachers. And a lot of the teachers were, were amenable. They were like, oh, good, I got a cut, you know. And a lot of them said, you can't sell it later. And I was like, that's fine. No, some people didn't care. And then what happened was I accumulated a whole wall of cassette masters that I had beautifully labeled from all of the events that I went to. And uh-huh. a few years later, I was talking to someone who was a direct mail catalog expert. And he, he came, we were talking because I saw that every time I went to a new place, people were interested in what I had recorded previously. And those authors who had given me permission to continue to sell those presentations, I had a list. And at the time, it was just a pink sheet of paper that had a list on both sides of it that I Xeroxed, that I gave away everywhere I went. 
And I'd get mail orders. People would take the pink sheet with them and then they would send in, I'd like a copy of this, a copy of that, a copy of that. I was like, oh, God, you know. So I thought, huh, maybe I should make a catalog, like something that's better than this pink sheet of paper. So a friend of a friend of mine was a direct mail catalog expert. He came in, he looked at the wall of cassette masters and he said, you know, you're sitting on a gold mine, Tammy. And I said, you think it's a gold mine? It's a bunch of unedited workshop recordings. You were a one-woman show at this point, right? Totally. Like you're schlepping totally. around with this stuff. Totally. Was it only in Boulder? Were you traveling to LA and all these other places? You know, I started traveling a little bit and hiring a couple people, but it was still mostly me, you know? And then okay. when we would go places, we would stay up all night making cassette copies. So we'd have enough of them ready, you know, the next day when people were to leave. So we'd have just the final session that we had to record, but everything else would be... You know, it was it was crazy work. Right? You know, it was, was work for crazy people. But, but it was anyway. paying for itself. It was you're you're yeah. making a decent oh, yeah. living. Well, I don't know, decent. I thought it was good. I mean, these were events I would have paid to go to anyway if I had the money right. to pay to go right. to them. So I was like, I'm getting into the event for free. So first of all, that was a win, big win. Second big win. I'm sitting at the back of the room with a pair of headphones on, so I don't have to really participate in all the exercises and stuff. It made me nervous. <laughs> so that was the second big win. Third big win, I leave afterwards after I've duplicated all these cassettes with cash in my pocket because people, people would pay cash for these cassette uh-huh. recordings. I was like, that's pretty cool. And fourth big win, I got to meet and interact with these spiritual teachers that I right. revered and give them a, a copy and all of that. And also, you know, I mentioned to you what happened to me when I was meditating. I was also that I went so far out that I couldn't integrate and come back in. And all right. this hard work and schlepping and staying up all night and labeling cassettes ad nauseum, you know, till my thumbs hurt, all of that was so embodying for me. It was just so good for me, so grounding. Huh. And it really helped me take all this energy and find a way to use it and be engaged and learn at the same time. So anyway, when this gentleman looked at the wall of masters and said that, he said, you know, I can build us a catalog. I can make a catalog. That's what I know how to do. I can make a little cover for each one of these programs, each one of these workshops you've recorded, and we'll put it in a catalog. And I was like, well, look, if you're going to package these programs with this phrase that he had, standalone information products, as a standalone information product. If we're going to package each one, I really want to edit them really carefully. And I'd learned how to edit on a big reel-to-reel machine from Mm. volunteering at the radio station. I was like, I want to edit each one really carefully because often with these live recordings, there's questions you can't hear. There's announcements about going to the bathroom and people don't want that if they're going to buy something from a catalog. They need a really beautifully edited program. So that was how he and I started our partnership. He ended up earning 20% of the original business through a sweat equity arrangement. I could only afford to pay him $10,000 a year for the first few years. I paid him that small amount of money, and then he earned his part of the ownership. And we put out the first Sounds True catalog together. I know eventually you developed these three bottom lines. And so obviously you were thinking in that way early, early on, you weren't being driven by money. You were being driven by disseminating spiritual wisdom, helping people, et cetera. When you're considering partnering with this person, Mr. Christensen, did he embody the things that you were seeing for yourself as these bottom lines? Like, was that important to you or the fact that he could do this catalog thing that you 
needed to take things to the next level. Was that more important or was there a little bit of both? It's kind of a little bit of both, but probably more the latter, meaning I really mm-hmm. respected his talent and we had a good, honorable, loving relationship with each other. I was much more invested in sort of the values and the principles and how we were operating. He was very invested that everything in the business be tickety-boo in a good way, like all the contracts need to be perfectly well done with all the authors, but which I appreciate in all the accounting mm. systems. And so, you know, I think I was more kind of the culture, philosophy, operating principles. He was the business principles and fundamentals. And he brought just a lot of talent, raw talent and hard work to what we were doing. So I think it was just more like that, if that, if that makes sense. So he was I, like the perfect person then, because I feel like a lot of people get in their own way. A lot of quote unquote, spiritual people get in their own way because they, they look for other people to be as invested in the spiritual component as they are. And they kind of discount. I mean, that's a great skill set, like you said, to be able to make sure that the contracts are in place and to make sure yeah. that whatever you're marketing is marketable so that people can actually come in and, and enjoy what you have. Well, and I don't think I could have entered a business partnership with someone that I didn't feel a sense of alignment with. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't his focus to focus as much on what the various bottom lines were, which I can explain in a moment. But I felt a sense of, I guess you would call it camaraderie, friendship, love, connection, truthfulness, partnership. I mean, we had an arrangement where if we couldn't agree we would not do anything until we Mm. could get to a place where we did agree. So -hmm. that's pretty key. Like if we disagreed about how to do something, we just wouldn't do anything on it. And then we'd wait and I could come back and make my case again, or he could come back and make his case again until, until we could get the other person to see the validity of what we were trying to do. So that's a pretty good kind of operating principle with someone, like not just like, well, hey, I'm the majority owner, so screw you. I'm going to do what I want anyway. Right. Like it wasn't like that. It was like, no, we're going to keep talking this through because if you if you don't agree with me, you probably have a really good point. Like right. there's something important you're trying to represent in this discussion that I need to understand. We need to address it before we move forward. But the three bottom lines, just to explain what that was, is in the beginning – I'm not sure why it was important for me to articulate this, but one thing that was very important for me to articulate, I I know why this was important, was I wanted the process of our work to be coherent and consistent with the products. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to publish these products that were about this beautiful way of living in an interdependent world and then have the process of our work be something that wasn't congruent with that. So the process and the products had to come together. And then for whatever reason, this was way before the whole notion of people, planet, profit, multiple bottom lines in business was a popular idea. It just became apparent to me that what I was doing was three things. One, I needed to be true to this mission, disseminate spiritual wisdom. Two, I needed the process of our work. Every step should be beautiful. Every step should be good. Every step should be honorable. And then the third part was, we got to make some cash. That's a bottom line for us. If there's no, you know, we say now, no margin, no mission. And it's true. You know, if you're not making cash, you can't do these other two things. You can't all come to work and have a good time and increase your connection with each other and your customers and your authors. And there's not going to be any money to do it. 
So the mission, the integrity of the process, and the actual generation of cash or profit. Later on in your book, you articulated that second bottom line as the love bottom line. And so yeah. when you say do things, make things beautiful, is that what you kind of mean by that is, is the yeah. congruency of Sometimes I think about it now as the relationship bottom line. I've kind of, I've kind of my, I called it the love bottom line for a while. <laughs> relationship. You know, there's a lot of different length process, how we do things, cultural yeah. bottom line. It's really the how. The how. And for me, the how is as important as the what. So whenever people tell you, you know, the ends justify the means, that doesn't work for me. And it doesn't work for me because each step on our path, I believe for myself, I want each step to be a good step. And in business, I think especially, people would use all kinds of tactics to get to some end, you know? And even just the whole old way that business has been done, make as much money as you can and then be a philanthropist. I was Mm -hmm. like, that's one way to approach business. Another way to approach business is be philanthropic, if you will, or generous or connected to everyone in every step of your business, every step, Mm -hmm. make a little Mm -hmm. bit less while you do it and bring everybody with you. And I was like, that, that fits for me better. Were you in the shower when you came up with the name sounds true? No, I wasn't in the shower, (laughs) but interestingly, I was writing a letter to Gunapala Dharmasiri and I was describing to him what I wanted to do. I was describing to him the vision I had for the business and everything. And so it was while I was writing that letter on, you know how they used to have when you would send something overseas, the kind of stationery you would use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The airmail. Yeah. yeah, So I was was writing an airmail envelope and that's when it came to me. And you knew right away that's that you had that feeling. Well, I mean, first of all, I had a previous name, Crystal Sound. So I fell in love with the name Crystal Sound. I had a logo made by some people who were on their way to the Rainbow Festival who made it out of stained glass that was a crystal with sound waves coming out of it. And I thought every cassette will be as valuable as a crystal and coded with information for future generations. Okay. There was a mobile DJ unit in Boulder, Colorado. I couldn't register the name Crystal Sound. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. (laughs) So then I had to come up with another name. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know what to call this thing. I don't know what to call it. And then it came through in that letter writing. And Devin, was he into it when you told him? Well, that was all before I met Devin. So when I first came up with the name, then I spent a couple years by myself with the tape recorder and the heavy duplicating equipment schlepping all over the place. And then it was a few years later that I had accumulated the wall of cassette masters and Devin walked in and we started our partnership. So three years after I'd started the company. Talk about what that means sounds true, because I had heard it a lot, but I didn't really appreciate it until I heard you talk about what it meant in your book. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I've already told you kind of the, there was a level of alienation I had as a child. Mm-hmm. And part of that alienation included watching politicians on TV or other leaders and thinking to myself, they're not telling the truth. I can tell when people are telling the truth. I can tell. I can tell when adults are telling the truth and when they're lying. And I was kind of like one of those little kids who had this like little secret. I can, att- I can tell when adults are lying. And it also bugged me. It bugged me a lot. It bugged me that people who were supposedly our representatives were liars. So that was a problem. And then I realized as I got older, 
that when people spoke the truth to me, I relaxed. And I remember when I would go to hear a Dharma talk. Remember, like I told you, even when the three principles, marks of existence were written on the blackboard and there was something, a deep truth that was being expressed as the person was talking, everything in me felt a little bit like I was listening to music. So beautiful to me. So that's kind of what I mean by it, like the sound of truth. And I think, you know, people have different kinds of sensitivities. Some people are very tactile. Some people are very visually sensitive. I'm very auditorially sensitive. So the tonal quality of someone's voice, the way they put their words together, everything kind of impacts me in a very visceral way. And mm-hmm. when people are sharing deep truths, it's like my whole body vibrates with the sound that is being expressed. I want to flash forward a little bit. You guys became very successful. You had a few bestsellers and then you ended up moving apartments and you had an epiphany in that process. Yeah. Well, I don't know what it's like for most people if you accumulate stuff or not, but I have a tendency to accumulate. I know light, you've been really good of getting rid of stuff, you know, so you're good at this. (laughs) I unfortunately can accumulate things. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I accumulated was a big couple boxes of cassettes of things I'd listened to that I didn't know what to do with. What am I going to do with these things? They're like halfway rewound, halfway not. They're missing from their case. So I had all these. And when I cleaned out my apartment, I thought, what do I do with them? I don't know what to do with them. And I threw them in the dumpster. I took the two boxes and I was like, I can't deal with this. And I felt terrible afterwards. You know, here I am. This is the business I'm in of creating these, you know, as precious as a crystal, whatever idea I had. And then I took two big boxes and threw them in a neighborhood dumpster. What's going on here? And so it's just, it it haunted me. It felt bad because I thought Mm -hmm. there are people who could have really listened and enjoyed this or that recording, but I didn't go to the trouble of figuring out how to rewind each cassette, stick it back with its cover, find a home for it. I didn't do that. I just tossed them. And from that idea, I thought, I wonder how many of our customers also have that experience where they buy a cassette product from us, they listen to it, and then they don't know what to do with it. Maybe they listen to it twice. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Some people might think like like a book, like I want to keep it forever. But I think a lot of other people are like, I listened to it once or twice and I'm done. I'm done. What do I do now? And so what we started uh, had this idea that we could create something called the Prison Audio Project where we would donate these cassette tapes to people in prison who had access to the ability to listen to them. And we then offered our customers the ability to send their used cassettes back to us and get a gift certificate that they could apply to a future purchase. And we would take all the cassettes, rewind them, make them all beautiful, and uh, send them off to a prison distribution group that we had made a partnership with. That's beautiful. Is that still happening? I know you have a foundation and we've, we've evolved beyond cassette tapes at this point, but yeah, what is- uh, we donate books to the prison system through our foundation, downloadable media. It's a lot more complicated with audio in today's world and CDs are no, because they're a sharp object. 
So it's a lot harder to get audio into the prison system, but we do have an active book donation program. You have worked with the biggest luminaries in spirituality, Eckhart Tolle, Caroline Mice, Michael Beckwith, David Data, like all these people, Jack Cornfield. And I'm just curious in your assessment, what do people who you end up crossing paths with and publishing their work, what do they have in common, if anything, that you've noticed over the years? Well, you know, that's a good question. And... I don't know, as you were talking, the first thing that occurred to me is, and this is probably a kind of weird, freaky answer, but I would say something about their astrology, and I don't know their astrology, but what I imagined was a star, like there's some kind of star blessing power and light that Mm -hmm. is operating with and through them. It's the karma of their life. And some people have that and some people don't. It doesn't mean that they have more wisdom necessarily than other people. Clearly, they have to have a gift. Uh, You know, I started calling certain people speech incarnations, especially when we're mostly doing audio work, it sounds true. Some people have a gift to speak directly from inner knowing. They just know Mm -hmm. how to do that. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's like they enter a stream or a river of some kind, and they can speak from that place. And that's a gift. And a lot of people have the insight, but it doesn't hook up with their vocal cords in the same real-time compelling way. So what gives some people that gift? I don't know. That's why I saw the star shining on Mm. them. I I don't know what Mm. to say. Your company that you started (laughs) from recording talks on dub machines has been around for 30 years. You mentioned that you've been doing some reflecting now that you're almost 60 years old. How does Tammy Simon look at success these days? And obviously not about in the material sense, but in terms of a successful life, like you said, at your funeral, at the end of your mission here on the earth school, like when the name Simon, Tammy Simon gets echoed throughout that room, what does a successful life for you look like? Yeah. What do you want us to feel? I guess a few things. One, she gave it all. She gave everything she had. She Mm -hmm. spent it all. She spent it all. She gave it all. And, you know, I feel that way sometimes. Like, Like I feel like an athlete. And, you know, when an athlete leaves it all on the court, and you're like, oh, my God, they left it all on the court. Everything. So I feel that, and I want to keep living that way. The other thing is I think of my family, I think of my wife, and I think of the people closest to me, and their experience of me and my life is what matters the most, and that they feel how much I love them, Mm -hmm. and that it's demonstrated. It's not like, yeah, she said that, but then she was too busy pouring her life out on the court for some mythic others. No. The people that are closest to me, I need to make sure I'm pouring out my heart for them all the Mm. time, every day. Just the Mm. immediate people, the people I work with. So those are the two things that occur to me. And final question. If you could go back and have a conversation with young 21-year-old Tammy, is there anything that you would advise her to do any differently? 
or just any words of encouragement that you would give her that you don't feel like she really embodied enough at that point in your life? I think I wasted a lot of energy in my life worrying, you know, having just thinking things through too much, way too much. So I would try to help the 21-year-old in me know and to use your language that you shared with me, keep trusting, Mm. to somehow help that part of her brain function, quiet the F down, and find that through line of creative power that runs through her and not spend, you know, I'd say, sweetheart, don't waste that much energy on those thought processes that don't get you anywhere. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. It's all, it's all going to be all right. It's all going to be more than all right. It's going to be beautiful and brilliant and glorious and you want to enjoy it. Well, I want to wrap this up by talking again about your childhood. And it's funny, you said, leave leave it all on the field like an athlete, because that's exactly what I was thinking when you mentioned football and particularly the wide receiver position. What makes a good wide receiver is someone who can really make a play for any throw that's coming in anywhere in their vicinity. And sometimes it means you have to catch it with one hand. Sometimes they're they're tippy toes so they don't go out of bounds. But I feel for me, what that represents when I hear your story is catching this sort of spiritual knowledge. You literally captured it in order to disseminate it to other people. And you did this thousands of times, just like a hall of famer wide receiver would do. You have to make thousands of catches to make it at that level. And so I think that you're definitely satisfying your mission, which is to leave it all in the field. And I just want to acknowledge you for showing up and saying yes, and going against convention as much as you've had to do in your life, even though you've had a lot of support But a lot of times that can be a double-edged sword because you have so much support going against that support. When they tell you, you've lost your mind, you don't know what you're doing, you're too young, come home immediately. It's really hard to stay on your path when you're facing that level of empathetic concern and you are able to kind of continue moving through all of that and, and trusting your heart. So for anyone out here listening to this conversation, I know that they will be inspired by hearing your story and maybe even inspired to pick up some of those books you mentioned. If they don't have anyone immediately in their life who they feel like can identify with their version of whatever their being themselves looks like. So, so yeah, just thank you so much again for hopping on this call, having this conversation and for publishing my book. And, uh, and hopefully this is the beginning of a, of a nice, long, fruitful relationship and we'll get a chance to definitely meet in person. You know, you're in Boulder, right? Yep. It's one of my favorite places. I was coming there a lot before the pandemic. And so hopefully I'll be back there soon, soon enough. And we'll get a chance to sit down on Pearl street somewhere and have some food. I would love that light. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Tammy Simon. To learn more about her story, she's got a book called Being True, What Matters Most in Work, Life, and Love. And she's also got some wonderful interviews on YouTube about conscious capitalism and being a conscious entrepreneur. I'll put those links in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And while you're on my site, you may also see links to my Sounds True published book, 
Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Many of the inspirational stories in the book are drawn from my five years of sending out those stories to my subscribers of my daily dose of inspiration email, which you can also subscribe for while you're on my website. And my final ask to you is to leave a rating or review for this podcast, which you can do really quickly by glancing down at your screen and on the Apple podcast app, click the name of this podcast at the end of the tunnel and then scroll down past the previous episodes you'll see the five blank stars. Tap the one all the way on the right and you've left a rating. Thank you all so much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.